The following program is sponsored by Friends of Life Outreach International. 14 years old, someone says, you want to try getting high? I thought, well, yeah, I mean, the rock stars do it. It's kind of this forbidden saying, you know, Proverbs says stolen water is sweet. You can't touch it. You want to try it? I, I try getting high, nothing happens. I smoke pot, nothing happens. They give me harder drugs. I smoke hash, nothing happens. Now I'm really interested. So very quickly, I'm doing heavy drugs. By the time I'm 15, I'm shooting heroin. Author Michael Brown shares his journey from LSD to PhD next. so much for sharing this time with us. I'm Betty and this is James. Well, we've got a guest that I want, I want to read some of the things people say about him. Dr. Brown gives new meaning to fundamental case. He needs a brain transplant. <laughs> You're just another right-wing nut job spewing your lunatic hatred. You are as ugly as ISIS is. Aren't you anxious to meet this person? You are quite possibly one of the stupidest men on the face of the earth. You are no less dangerous than Hitler. You are a threat to society. This man is on crack or he's just plain delusional. You're a horrendous, arrogant bigot. Aren't you anxious to meet this man? Let me tell you what I found. I found someone that was willing to challenge each of us, each of us, as we actually need to be challenged to be honed, iron sharpens iron, and I found someone who accepts gladly the challenge to be honed so that we're all keener, better, sharper. And I found that, that what I could see, even as I began to read an introduction to any one of the books, he's written many, there was compassion and love that was so real that he was willing to withstand insults. And perhaps no one was more insulted than Jesus who was the only perfect person who's ever lived and did everything right, and yet look how he was treated. Well, our guest is Dr. Michael Brown. He has the uh, uh, Line of Fire uh, radio program. We're actually featuring something on the stream uh, weekly, as often as we're able to do that, which is, is I think, going to be very consistent. Uh, but he also has a fire uh, school of ministry, and I want you to welcome him to life today, Dr. Michael Brown. Not good to see you. I'm going to hold up an advanced copy I got, and I was fortunate enough to get the actual hardback that's in the bookstores, Outlasting, Outlasting the Gay Revolution, Eight Principles for Long-Term Cultural Change. And, and from the moment I began to read the book, I saw nothing but love and compassion and understanding. But I also saw someone seeking to faithfully hold up the standard that all of us are to move toward because it's a reliable standard. And I'm really, really glad that you're here. What do you want us to hear from this book? And then I want you to tell us your testimony because you're Jewish, but something happened to you. You're a heroin addict, something happened to you. But what, just, just give me, because we're going to come back to it, what do you hope 
this book accomplishes. You know, across America today, conservative Christians, they're discouraged. They want to throw in the towel. We've been told the ship has sailed. It's over. You've lost the culture wars. Marriage has been redefined. It's never going back. Face the fact your side lost. I wrote this book to say it is not time to throw in the towel. It is time to push back in a godly way by the spirit full of love. This is our defining moment. The Supreme Court decision, June 26, to redefine marriage, that's not the end of the story. That's our rallying call. The bad news is the good news. The church is finally waking up, and this is a manual for long-term cultural change, for a real Jesus revolution in the society. Well, the only way the gates of hell would prevail would be for those of us left as salt and light to simply refuse to be what Jesus left us here to be, and salt that loses its effect to protect the precious and preserve it is then trampled under the foot of men because it's lost it. If the church doesn't stand as your challenges do, the precious will be trampled under exactly. feet, just like the innocent life in the wombs. Now the body parts being sold and auctioned off, so to speak, and, and marriage is being redefined. Marriage has been under attack before the gay revolution even started. So the enemy appears to be winning, and if in fact he is, it's because the church opted out rather than getting in. Exactly. Francis Schaeffer said something to the effect some years ago about abortion, that every abortion clinic should have a sign open by permission of the local church. I've said for many, many <laughs> years, my issue is not so much the presence of darkness, it's the absence of light. Mm -hmm. I don't expect the world to do godly things, I expect the church to do godly things. So for years we've been saying, look, we must face these issues. We must recognize that gay activism, talking about activists, gay activism has become the principal threat to freedom of religion, speech, and conscience in America. And people look at me like I was crazy. Mm -hmm. And now they're all coming, they said, what do we do? What are the strategies? How do we stand? Is it too late? And I said, you know, I feel like an umbrella salesman in the desert. People say, what are you doing with all these umbrellas? You got warehouses full of umbrellas, but the storm is here. Everybody needs one. Needs one. So I wrote Outlasting the Gay Revolution to say there's hope. It's a call to courage. Backbones of steel with hearts of compassion. I believe by God's grace as we live by his principles, we will be the last man standing. And I do believe that, and I agree with you. The sad thing is that as Christians, we're we're told that if if we stand strong, if we stand on our convictions and on God's word and what we believe, that we're not being loving, mm -hmm. we're not being compassionate, and we're not being forgiving. And and so that comes at Christians. They say, then they tend to cower down because exactly. Of that. So so the unspoken mantra of gay activists has been, we will intimidate and we will manipulate until you capitulate. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, for the very reasons you gave, many Christians have capitulated already because we don't want to be perceived as hateful. Look, I don't enjoy those kind of comments coming my way, but I know it's for standing for truth mm -hmm. because it's not for hatred, it's not for anger, it's not for bigotry, but the moment you address things, you're going to get tarred and feathered. So what we must do is overcome evil with good. We must overcome hatred with truth and love and and ultimately by the spirit we have weapons that will win that will triumph if we fight anger with anger we're defeated martin luther king said darkness can't drive out darkness and that's why right at the beginning of the book i say one of the major principles is we've got to take the highest moral ground and pastors and leaders need to speak with courage i'm constantly 
bombarded with people coming to me and saying, thank God you're speaking in a way that's loving and truthful. You're not backing down because they see so many others backing down. And many times we back down because we don't know what to say. We're afraid we don't have the right answers. We don't know how to handle the thing, so we withdraw. We owe it to the world. We owe it to the homosexual community. We owe it to God to stand. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the ultimate test of a moral society is the kind of world that it leaves to its children. Mm -hmm. That's the big question. What kind of world are we leaving to our children? I got saved in 71. All right, so I don't go back as far as well, you. You're but talking I, about the church and talking about Jesus, and you Jewish. That's your background. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> yeah, tell us what happened. All right, so I'm born in New York City, 1955. 1968, I was bar mitzvahed, but we weren't religious Jews. It was more of a social event for me. I don't the, even know if there are very many religious <laughs> Jews, to be honest. Oh, well, I mean, about 10% yeah, of okay. the world population and growing okay. in Israel because of large birth rates right, and things okay. like that. Mm -hmm. But we grew up, you know, nominal, so I, I, I'd go to synagogue on the high holy days and things like that. I was bar mitzvah. It was more of a social event. When I was 13, though, the big event for me was seeing Jimi Hendrix in concert. <laughs> and when I saw Hendrix in concert, man, you know, I wanted to be like that. I was playing drums in a rock band. I started growing my hair long. 14 years old, someone says, you want to try getting high? I thought... Well, yeah, I mean, the rock stars do it. It's kind of this forbidden thing. You know, Proverbs <laughs> says, stolen water is sweet. You can't touch it. You want to try it? I, I try getting high. Nothing happens. I smoke pot. Nothing happens. They give me harder drugs. I smoke hash. Nothing happens. Now I'm really interested. So very quickly, I'm doing heavy drugs. By the time I'm 15, I'm shooting heroin. I developed the nickname Drug Bear and Iron Man because I could do more drugs than anyone in my school. And foolishly, as an idiotic teenager, I thought that's cool. It's cool <laughs> to be able to almost overdose and survive it. I once did enough hallucinogenic drugs for 30 people, lived to survive, and, and lived another day. A lot of these people will say it really did affect you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've had that say. I've, I've had that accusation. But what happened was, 16 years old, heavy drug user, playing drums in my rock band, the two fellow band members started going with these two girls. They liked these girls. These girls went to a little Italian Pentecostal church. My friends start going, you got to understand, this church also taught about the end times a lot. They teach from the book of Revelation. So I'm not exaggerating. My friends would come home. We'd be sitting together getting high because they're not saved yet, but they're going to church. We're sitting together on LSD tripping, and they're saying, Mike, there's going to be a beast with seven heads and ten horns. It's going to come out of a bottomless pit. And we're like, wow, that's cool, man. That's in the Bible? That's cool. So little by little, God works in them. They get saved. I go to pull them out of the church, and the people start praying for me. The first service I attended, this is not on your list there, first service I attended, a young lady who knew me from high school wrote down, Antichrist comes to church. Because I was not just a sinner. I was a wicked, proud, rebellious kid. God begins to convict me of my sin. By the end of 1971, I am radically, dramatically <laughs> born again. And one night, encountering the love of God, his forgiveness, and exposing the depth of my sin, I said, I will never put a needle in my arm again. That was December 17th, 1971, free from that day on. My dad said, great, you're off drugs, but we're Jews. We don't believe this. He brings me to meet the local rabbi. The rabbi says, you're a very sincere young man. This is wonderful, but you can't even read Hebrew. How can you tell us what to believe? So my testimony is literally from LSD to PhD. That's why I got a doctorate in Semitic languages, because I wanted to be able to answer the rabbis. I wanted to be able to have an intellectually sound answer. I determined I don't care which way the truth leads. 
if I'm wrong in what I believe, I'm going to follow the truth. I've got to do what's right in God's sight. Wow. And the more that I was challenged, I went to, I never went to seminary, Bible school. It was all secular. Nobody agreed with me. I was challenged from day one to the last day. It reinforced my faith and deepened my faith. Hmm. But, but here's the problem. When I got saved in 71, you remember, Jesus is coming any minute. <laughs> it's all over. Jerusalem's back in Jewish hands, the Six-Day War, the clock is ticking, counterculture revolution of the 60s. It's all over. This is the end, the last times. This is the most wicked generation ever. I was 44 years ago. My oldest granddaughter's 15, about to turn 15. So we think Jesus is coming any minute. We abdicate. Instead of saying, what can we do to bring about long-term cultural change? It's always in our mind, we're out of here. And now, look, the moment I bring up issues with gay activism on my radio show, people call in, that's a sign of the end, it's all over. It's like, man, I've been hearing that for 44 years. So we got one life. Uh, one of my friends says it may not be the last generation, but it's our last generation. So if I'm in a relay race, right, I got to run my race the best way I can and then hand the baton to the next one. The church must wake up. If we don't, we're going to have to apologize to our kids and grandkids. They'll be able to say, Mom, Dad, Grandma, Grandpa, what were you doing when they made all the bathrooms in our schools gender neutral? What were you doing when they were celebrating Caitlyn Jenner? How come you weren't saying there's something wrong? What were you doing when the courts redefined marriage? We're going to have to explain that. The good news is there's still time. So as you and I have talked, I have, I have watched you address things in any person's life. You know you're a part of the stream, very regular. You're one of our most frequent writers. But we also have Catholics who know Jesus, have a relationship with Jesus. Brothers, you think Catholics know Jesus? I say, you think Protestants know Jesus? You think Charismatics know Jesus? I'm asking the Baptists know Jesus. This is a little Baptist Sunday school teacher. Came out of the choir to get saved. She didn't know the Lord. That's what I told Pope Francis. I said, we were in Baptist church, didn't know the Lord. I know a lot of Catholics don't know the Lord. He said, me too. They need to be born again. They need a relationship with Christ. Even priests do, he said. I said, that's a high five. He gave it to me. So we were talking about people coming to know Christ. You really and truly are pointing people to a living Jesus. And what I see you doing is addressing issues, just like we do with the stream. We will address issues that relate to the Vatican or to the Pope or some leader. You have been addressing issues that pastors or preachers or teachers should examine. And I don't hear you coming as a critic. Are you trying to cause trouble when you say, would you just analyze this or would you consider this? What are you trying to do when you, let's say, you address something in some highly visible preacher? Listen, we're called to be peacemakers, not troublemakers. And I do what I do out of, out of a burden. Uh, first, I'm jealous for the glory of God. I don't want his name misrepresented. W when the church takes a wrong stand on homosexual issues, when they think the louder we shout, we just quote Leviticus 18:22 in the King James and shout it louder, and we've solved all the social issues, we don't realize you got hurting people out there. you got lost people out there. you got a family whose kid just came out as gay. you got a 16-year-old who's ready to commit suicide because he thinks God hates him and the church hates him. Are we considering those people as well? When I got burdened about homosexual issues about 11 years ago, it was 2004, it was quite out of the blue. That was not an issue I dealt with before I was saved. If I dealt with sexual issues or heterosexual issues, uh, I, I didn't have a ministry to, to those who were homosexual. Even though someone very close to our family came out of homosexuality, it was never a real burden. But God started to burden me about what was happening in the society, what was being taught in the schools. I mean, you got a nursery school in the city where I live where the teachers can't say boys and girls. They have to address the kids as friends because you can't make gender distinctions. I'd see this kind of social madness. I see the real threat to our freedom of religion, speech, and conscience. I started to get burdened about the issues, but then I wanted to get to know the people. I'd sit and talk with anyone I could. Once I heard they were gay or lesbian, I'd say, tell me your story. 
Tell me about your life. Tell me what you've experienced. And I read all the books that I can where they tell their stories. There's someone who's a gay pastor and trying to justify it and how he tried to have demons driven out of him, how he was suicidal, and how he's, he's accepted that the Bible is accepting of homosexual practice and so on. I read their stuff. Sometimes the agony would be so great. I'd put the book down and get in the room alone and cry. I said, God, I don't want to hurt these people. Mm -hmm. I want to help them. Mm -hmm. And the Spirit gave me a clear word. Reach out and resist. Reach out to the people with compassion. Resist the agenda with courage. So if I'm preaching in a church and they want me to talk about marriage and talk about why we cannot redefine marriage and talk about the importance of these things and expose gay activism, I'm going to do it with the thought there's a gay kid in the front row that came wanting hope tonight. There's a couple struggling because their grandkid just came out and they don't know how to respond. So I, I want to stand strong against the agenda. We must. We, Martin Luther King said the church must be reminded it's not the master of the state or the servant of the state, but the conscience mm. of the state. We must be the conscience of the society. We must be that light in darkness. We understand that. At the same time, we are the answer through the gospel for every hurting and lost person. So there's a tension I always live with because I know that calling, that prophetic burden to speak, and yet there's the pain knowing that you're going to be misunderstood, knowing that people you want to reach, they'll feel pushed away. How can you do it at the same time? And I think that's part of what we live with, always that holy tension in this world. But if it's for the praise of men, we've got to throw in the towel. It's not going to work. You bear witness with what Michael just said. I do with all my heart. Do you, Betty? Do you believe if someone will go through this book, Outlast It, that what you're showing them is how we not just live through it, but live in such a way that we lift people up out of any bondage or defeat that may be troubling them and they don't know how to deal with it. And I would say people who are defeated in the areas that have not been accepted or where they've been mocked or ridiculed, they, they would be very much concerned. It would be very easy to justify these appetites or desires when no one is willing to talk to them with love and concern. I see you trying to present an avenue of hope for the people who are defeated, downtrodden, they're bewildered, they're troubled, they're puzzled, and, and showing us how we can offer hope. And you're actually showing the whole church how we can not just outlast, but, but really reveal a life that is eternal starting right now. Isn't yes. that exactly what you're trying to do and what a they'll see? Absolutely. And not only will it give hope to readers, I've had folks say that they read the book in one, one night. They said they never did it with a nonfiction book before, couldn't put it down. And they were discouraged. They thought, it's over, we, we've lost. First, hope and courage rise, but then with that, they get a heart for the people. They, they see God's ways are best. They see that gay activism has within itself the seeds of self-destruction, that ultimately it's a self-defeating movement. They see where it goes, and with that, God's ways are better ways. We're always lifting up. We're always pointing to Him, and there's got to be a multi-generational vision. And you literally list eight steps. I want to talk to you in another program. Michael's going to be back with us, but the book is in the bookstores, so you can get it online, and I will tell you, we'll send it to you if you'd like to have it. And by the way, if you feel like I'm struggling with this, or I don't even like what he's saying, well, wait a minute, what he's saying is in love because where you're headed, if any of us head away from the standard that God said, this is best, this is a hedge of protection, not prison walls, not religious traditional bondage, but this is freedom and liberty and protection. This is what the Lord offers. You want to walk that way. You want to find that way. Please know that the Jesus that changed him is the Jesus that changes all of us, but he's also the Jesus we're supposed to share. We're supposed to be sharing. Michael, our viewers literally have learned if they watch life today, they're going to meet people that love them. They're going to hear people who have wonderful stories, miraculous stories. They're going to get insight and direction. But something else they're going to see, and you know this is true, you're going to see someone that needs the touch of love, just like you may need it. I want you to look in right now 
And I want you to listen and hear what God says to you and ask God, what am I to do in regard to what I see and what I hear? Watch very closely. Please do. People come in from rural areas. They bring their kids here when their kids are really severely malnourished. Unfortunately, they often bring them very late. But there is help here, and we do save a lot of lives. Unfortunately, we lose some too, because they do bring them in late. And then the other thing is the mothers come here, and the mothers don't have any food. Yeah, so these clinics are vitally important in the saving of kids' lives. I mean, we have saved literally thousands of lives working in these malnutrition clinics. And I'm going to show you a little uh, boy here at the moment who's got a very bad disease that comes directly from malnutrition. Look at his little stomach. His arms are swollen. And yet look how thin his little neck is and look at his ribs sticking out. That's a condition called Kwasioka. I mean, that's why he's here. But to be honest, he needs prayer. Because to me, a child like this has maybe 10% chance of making it. I mean, that's the actual, that's the tragedy. If we could have had him here earlier, or better than that, if we could have fed him in his village, we could have saved him from coming here. And you know what the big thing is? You can make the difference for others that they don't have to come here. You can make the difference that we can reach them in the village before they ever get here. That's what we really would like to achieve. And that's what mission feeding does. It reaches children before they get to this advanced stage. So please, today, don't leave it. Today, it's vital today, not tomorrow, today. Please do something, do something right now. Well, we have tremendous emotional response to what we see because Peter's talking to our, our grandson, our youngest daughter's grandson, our daughter that, as you know, is, is with the Lord because uh, uh, we, we lost her uh, nearly three years ago now. And he's telling Chris, after just graduating from Baylor University, there on the mission field, this is what we're facing. But he's also saying something far more important than just what Chris is hearing. And by the way, Chris said, Papa, it changed my life. It changed my life forever. I'll never be the same, Papa. I never will be. And I, I'm watching God do beautiful things. It's going to be amazing to watch. But, but what he was actually saying, Betty, is that if we, that's what Peter's asking. He said, we can stop these children before they get to this malnutrition clinic where it's the last chance. We can get them in the villages where they are malnourished. And we can begin to feed them. And they've located 400,000. And they basically have them organized, like you saw Chris and Jeannie Rogers sitting there feeding with the, with the bowls. 400,000 children now and their families. We've got them located and organized, and all we need to do is give them the food. And when I say we, who does that? We do. All of us, that's you. Not me and Betty, not Life Outreach. But through Life Today and through Life Outreach, all of us, the great we, the family of God, we're able to feed those children. And we're able to give them a chance. And all those malnutrition clinics... They were founded by love. And we've given hundreds of trucks over the years, worn out hundreds of them. Right now, they've just told us we have to have, in order to meet the need, we've got to have eight more 10-ton trucks. Betty, that's over $300,000. That's in addition to the 30, 50, or $100 to feed three, five, or 10 children for the next several months. 
we've got to get the trucks. So we're looking at a tremendous need right now for someone to reach out, like Peter said, would you just help us feed them before they ever get here? Would you help us feed them where we located them, in their villages, in the areas of desperate need? Will you do it? The telephone number there, lifetoday.org, that phone number. You contact us on Life Today. You call that number. You take your bank card and please say, here's what God's leading me to give. Remember this, $100 feeds 10 children for the next month. 50 will feed five, 30 will feed three. There's a level at which you can participate. I think there are many of you who could give $1,000 or more or whatever you can to help us get those trucks and to get another more than 70,000 bowls for the children. Would you please right now respond as God directs? Would you be a response to Peter Pretorius's plea in behalf of those children? Please do it. Use your bank card like a check. That's how you should always use it. Thank you so much for doing it. And as you respond, please, as you give, as you call, pray someone else will join you. Pray many will. And let's put arms of love around those precious children and give them hope. Thank you for doing it. Disease, malnutrition, starvation, all terrible human atrocities being faced every day by people living in remote and impoverished areas of Africa. And those at greatest risk are the children. Life's Mission Feeding Program is there, able to feed and care for over 400,000 children in crisis areas of Angola, Mozambique, and Sudan. With previous food reserves gone and malnutrition levels in Angola rising due to increased food scarcity, we desperately need to replenish our supplies for our feeding programs immediately. Your life-saving gift of $30, $50, or $100 will help feed and care for three, five, or 10 children for the next three months. Also, please consider an additional gift toward our $316,000 goal to provide eight all-wheel drive trucks and 76,000 new bowls for the children. As our thank you, we'll send you this soft-cover journal Bible featuring the Gospels, Psalms, and Proverbs for your devotional time in the Word. With your gift of $100 or more to help feed 10 children, please request the complete Holy Bible Journal Edition, perfect for keeping notes and insights as you read and study. And finally, with your gift of $1,000 or more to help feed 100 children, you may request this beautifully framed canvas print of The Forest Chapel by Thomas Kincaid. Please call, write, or make your gift online today. Betty and I want to say thank you so much, and uh, we just bless you because you're really blessing many, many. You're actually saving lives and giving life. And we're going to point them to the giver of life and the one who inspired the love. The Holy Bible Journal Edition, the beautiful leather Bible. If you want the Thomas Kincaid uh, Forest Chapel, ask for it. Also today, if you'd like to have, and I believe this is a revolutionary book uh, in the sense that I believe it will awaken the church and lead to the very necessary awakening, outlasting the gay revolution. And really and truly, we outlast anything that in any way hurts others if we will respond in love and truth and speak the truth in love, which I really believe Michael Brown does. And he'll be back for another program. We're going to touch on some of these eight aspects that are so critically important. Join us in thanking Dr. Brown. Michael, thank you so much. Appreciate you. Again, if you'd like to have the book, it's in the bookstores. You can get it online. Or you can simply say, I'm going to help you and ask for it. We'll send it to you. Thank you so much for watching and sharing.
Tomorrow, author and host of the national radio show, Line of Fire, Michael Brown answers the question, how should Christians respond to gay activism? Life Today is made possible by the supporters of Life Outreach International. Your gift will be used exclusively for the exempt purposes of life. The ministry features specific outreaches as examples of the programs it supports and conducts. Gifts are considered to be without restriction as to use unless explicitly stipulated by the donor. The ministry is a member of the ECFA.